If you're vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be carefully conflicting, and here's why. In this episode, we're finding answers to how do we build two cultures that directly oppose one another? And how do we build some cultures that may philosophically split the party? And how do we make sure it involves slugs? I'm all about slugs. <laughs> Their slimy little bellies are all I crave. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh no. Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Travis, and, and this I'm... is unfortunately my brother, Jordan. Yes. Well, welcome and thanks for joining us and returning to this current season. In this episode, we're going to use our culture creation system to build a wholly original culture. And we're going to do two of them, not just one of them, because we wanted two cultures that are kind of at odds, kind of working together. And it's kind of just like, a fun opportunity to do something different with the culture creator. Right. Create, create two at the same time. I mean, it kind of flows really elegantly from our four corner opposition episode, which was the very last episode about how to like create conflict. And now we're creating cultures that conflict. But the problem with culture creation though, is when you're trying to introduce a culture to players that they don't really care about. Yes, we can create, conflicting cultures but how do we make conflicting cultures that our players give a shit about well they gotta have something to do with their traits or their values right right so they have to align with those characters and what they actually care about and the reason that this is the only approach we ever take to cultures is making sure that we consider the players is that cultures from modules have a lot of challenges for us Anytime we see something in a module, we're like, okay, how, why does it fit in my game? I don't think so. If I plop it in and we have plopped them in. <laughs> and like, admittedly, as a writer, I'm sure for some of these large modules, you know, it's difficult because you don't know who the players are. So you just have to write really broad in different factions and hope that the players care about them. Yeah. And a GM who maybe doesn't know how to do this or how to factor it in and make it matter to the players, you know, that requires a whole bunch of careful fine tuning to content that's already pre-written. It's a lot of effort. And my approach as a new GM was basically the equivalent of holding up a card and being like, this one do anything for you? Anybody? <laughs> no? Okay, let's try this one. And right. doing that like 15 times before somebody... <laughs> Oh, this one caught. Somebody <laughs> raised an eyebrow. I guess yeah. this one's it. I have no idea why, but here we go. I mean, a good example would be like the Zentarim from D&D. You know, they're a roguish faction. And as a rogue, you like them because they are, in fact, a roguish faction. <laughs> They've got flying snakes as a signature creature, and therefore, you align with them. Yeah, snakes. 
and you're a rogue. Like it, it says nothing to the values, what they're about. They're about doing roguish things. You know, they've always got some shady deal going on. And that really kind of defines the entirety of that culture, which is not a lot to work with as a GM or as a player. They're edgy, Travis. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. And without some of these guiding values, it's really dangerously easy to slip into stereotype and casual fantasy racism. Like the whole thing where it's like, oh, well, these cultures conflict because the elves don't like the dwarves because the dwarves are short and something that happened long, long ago and we don't really know why. Yeah. Hatred for one another exists and that's all that... <laughs> that's all you really <laughs> need to know. Matters, apparently. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... You give the dwarves a Scottish accent and it's like, uh oh, <laughs> now we've slipped into uh, this is this is some dicey waters. This got bad fast. Abort. Yeah. <laughs> so we put quite a bit of thought into our culture creator, which you can find at hookandchance.com slash resources. We'll have a link for you in the notes. And it walks through building out what a culture values most of all, what they're willing to sacrifice in order to obtain the ideals that they're striving for. And a lot of details, which just it always seems to work for us. And the reason I love it so much is that, like you said, it, it just works. You establish those values and then all of a sudden, all the little cultural details just start cascading. They just one after another. It's like, oh, well, obviously they're going to wear this. This is the kind of clothes that they would favor because these are their values rather than like, well, I guess I'll just throw a dart at a board and, you know, they're going to wear a this and like they all use bows. Who the fuck knows why, <laughs> but they're all about bows. Yeah, it helps you create a detail quickly and on purpose with uh, that core to draw from rather than what I've done before, which is scroll through the endless Google pages of pictures of weapons <laughs> to figure out right. what weapon they might use. And the cool thing is that 10 minutes later, you have a culture. You do. It's your culture. Yeah. You created it. You didn't appropriate it. You didn't do anything offensive to, to borrow from it. You just have something that is totally 100% unique to you and your players and your story, which is awesome. So today we're going to use that as the framework for this episode. We're going to show you how quick and easy it is to build your own. And you'll at least come away with two ready to run cultures and some details that make it believable for players. Tweak them, use them however you want. So the way the culture creator actually works is that you basically pick cultural values. Like you said, George, the ones that they cherish and the ones that they're willing to sacrifice. And then from there, you add some belief statements, a bit of a backstory, and some of those cultural details like artifacts, phrases, and styles. But like you kind of alluded to, if you've been following along with this season, we need two. And we have a culture of monks that is taking care of a temple. They are the caretakers of some immense power. And then we have another culture of a carefree surf town style community that has sprung up around it. And what we're thinking with this one is simply that we can create two cultures by creating one because one is basically a mirror of the other. Cutting our work in half. Work smart, not hard. But in order to cook up some ideas to inspire these cultures, let's go to the archives of the ancients and see what we can find. 
Welcome to the Archives of the Ancients, where lost legends and forgotten folklore are rediscovered to guide fresh ideas for our world. Now, on our inspirations for this episode, we found a couple of grand historical projects that we wanted to use. They were impressive, they had some really cool facts, but boy, there sure is a lesson in history that every time some grand project was undertaken by the powerful, it was built on the labor and lives of <laughs> someone else. I mean, you just described most of human history. Yes, I'm aware. <laughs> Somehow, ooh, this is really, oh, okay. Yeah, that was terrible. Yeah. In order to get there. Ooh, look at the, oh, no, that's even worse than the first one. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's going to be a flip side to all of these, but the first inspiration that I think is super cool is the Baths of Kar Karasala? That's what I've been saying in my head. Okay, well, <laughs> I mean, it's going to take time to go and double check that pronunciation, so let's just move on. Yeah. <laughs> what is so cool about this? First, we've got baths. The Frigidarium, which is the cold baths. The Tepidarium, which is the medium baths. And the caladarium, which is the hot baths and a swimming pool. Okay, you're super into baths. Yeah. You want to give me some context for what? Sure, sure. Baths. Stay with me. <laughs> God damn it. Okay, well, the context is, is that it's a Roman bathhouse. All right. It's not just any Roman bathhouse. It is one of the largest in the world, the most grandiose bathhouse that you've ever seen. It occupied 62 acres. The building itself was surrounded by huge outer walls. There was 252 columns making up this huge monstrosity, and they were over 40 feet tall, and they were made of granite, and they weighed 100 tons each. Good Lord. I've had showers I don't even fit in. Like, I can't lay down <laughs> in my bath. <laughs> and here we have a 62-acre <laughs> bathhouse. Yeah. Yeah, so this was built over many years, starting around the year 212, and initiated by Emperor Septimus Severus, and was just sort of finished, sort of finished by 235, and they just continued to kind of tack on new things, like they, it was a, kind of a labor of love. Sounds like they had tons of money to burn, so why not make some more, <laughs> uh, <laughs> some more uh, columns and some more statues, eh? Right, yeah, just keep... Keep adding more statues, more opulence. And the size and the scale of this just blows my mind because for the work to have mostly been completed in the time of Karasala, workers would have had to have installed over 2,000 tons of material every single day for six years. And then their successors continued to add more like, to this. That's a complex. project that I, I don't even know if that kind of volume happens today like that would impress me if it was modern right like it was one of those modern wonders it was considered a modern wonder in the time of rome yeah so yeah it was it was a pretty big deal you know they had statues all over the place of course intricately carved of all of their figures of myth and it was made completely free to everyone the it, approximately 1600 bathers a day would kind of show up at, at any one given time, but it could actually support up to 6,000 people. Wow. At one time. This is Disney World of ancient Rome. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Bath World. <laughs> Bath World. 
Come get your bag. <laughs> but that yeah, mascot? everything from fitness to it had a library. It had all of these things. And it even had a massive underground complex underneath it for the support of the function of this entire place. You know, they would heat the baths up with wood fires under the ground. And one of the really weird features that I think we can draw from is a feature called the Mytherium. It was basically a rectangular hole in the floor that gives access to a small tunnel that runs underneath the center of the main hall. So basically, it's just this square hole, and there's contention about what it was for. Potential purpose one, it was thought to be used as a place where bulls were slaughtered to uh, allow bathers to go underneath a grate and bathe in the blood of the bull. That is, is that like the pre-shower or the post-shower before you go in? Like, what is that? <laughs> go wash all of the schmutz off of yourself underneath that bull over there. It's going from my bull blood bath. <laughs> I mean, disgusting oh fucking metal. God, yeah. Like, I, I don't know. So the other one, and this is where the contention comes in, some historians believe that it was used as a surprise grand entrance. What, like, you know, like a trap door in a stage? Yeah, somebody would like lift you up and you'd be like, surprise, I'm here. Welcome, bathers. <laughs> of course, you'd do it nude. Right. You want to surprise everyone <laughs> in the buff. Yeah. And I mean, the, the platform lifting you up real suddenly makes yeah. sure that everything kind of jiggles and flops <laughs> around. Cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> now, I know that the Romans were into like theatrics, but something tells me that the bull is probably a lot more <laughs> too specific to not be true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot that we can draw on. This is basically like a Roman version of exactly what we've been talking about in this season. Right. Because we've been talking about having healing waters that are kind of the, the whole reason these two cultures are here. So that's, that's what led us to the Roman baths. But to your point, Everything has a negative, and apparently Karasala was an absolute dickhole. <laughs> a real conqueror type? Like, yeah, he was And a obviously, tyrant. if you're making bathhouse your main concern, you're not worrying about the more important duties of a leader. Well, and that's like pretty much the entire history of the Romans of like, they gave us the aqueducts, but <laughs> they, they had somebody die every day in the Colosseum. Yeah. Um, oh, but they gave us free public baths. But they also ordered genocide. Yeah. So. <laughs> and it was probably your, your, your claim of free to everyone probably doesn't include not right. high class <laughs> Romans. <laughs> That's what they mean by everyone. Yeah. Who knows what the ticket price to get in there yeah. actually was. All right. So our next bit of inspiration. This one is a little bit closer to home. Banff, which is a community. Well, actually, it's a national park and a town within that park. And the reason that it came to mind for this is because the town is a community that sprang up quickly around healing waters, which is kind of what our our secondary culture is. Right. So before it was a town, it was for thousands of years a trading hub for many indigenous communities. And fortunately, now the indigenous advisory circle has some say in what happens in Banff National Park. And it's made up of members from Bears Paw, Chiniki, Good Stony First Nations groups, the Siksika, Gaina, Pekani, Sutena, 
and the Métis Nation of Alberta. So a lot of indigenous cultures used this land before Canadians plopped a town on it. Well, and I can already see exactly how that went. You know, it's way up in the mountains. If you've never been to Banff, it's absolutely stunning. But, you know, I could see how this would go down historically. This is like <laughs> the indigenous peoples were like, hey, this is where we come to trade. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Hell yeah, let's slap up a resort. That's ours now. Isn't that neat? Yeah, pretty much. And it, <laughs> of course, it gets worse than that. Before we get to the fun stuff, its actual history is during construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway, somebody noticed the hot springs that were tucked into this gorgeous mountain that you're talking about, which they named Tunnel Mountain because they wanted to put a tunnel through it. They didn't. <laughs> but <laughs> They didn't. But it's still called Tunnel Mountain? Yeah. Yep. Well, no, it's not still called Tunnel Mountain because it finally got reverted to the indigenous name in 2016, which is Sacred Buffalo Guardian Mountain. Objectively, way better. Way better. Like, go with that one first. Yeah. But also, holy shit, that is so on point for how, how we've done things for a long time. Well, it just kind of speaks to the cultural values of each culture, too, because on one hand, you've got a a very meaningful name based on the history of a culture. And the other, you've got somebody that's trying to make some quick cash by tunneling <laughs> a hole through a mountain. Not even that, but like, oh, we're going to rename it something we're not going to fucking do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not even going to put in the effort to do it. So yeah, they rush up there. They want to take advantage. They design this grand hotel that's more like a castle than what we think of as a hotel today. But uh, they were in such a rush to make that cash that they built it backwards. So they had the <laughs> front door facing the steep mountain rather than the gorgeous what? panoramic views. Wow. Imagine that dude when he just like <laughs> takes the blueprints and then yeah. turns them slowly. Ah, oh, shit. All done, boss. What? Wait. <laughs> Wait, something's wrong. You idiot. We were supposed to be facing the view. <laughs> like this is, this comes across as like a cartoon rather right? than, yeah. Well, I know right around like the early to mid 1800s in Canada, they did all kinds of crazy shit to quickly put up resort towns because that was, that was the Vogue thing to do. Everyone wanted to travel by rail and go to a picturesque, you know, wild kind of frontier place. And I know that like there's a few other places in BC where they just like drowned towns. They gave a town like 30 days to move. And they were like, by the way, you're going to be at the bottom of a lake because we really want a lake where we want to build this resort. So you uh. guys need to move. <laughs> and then they just dammed it up and then sunk a town. So it, it happened all over BC. It was a very in fashion thing to do is build a resort backwards, apparently. <laughs> Quick and dirty. Yeah, so it, it was built in 1886. You're right around the uh, right time period there. And right after it was built, there was a huge amount of expansions done due to people just showing up in droves. It burned down in 1929 because some workers started a fire too close to it. Yes, when they were in pre-construction on a new <laughs> wing. And so, like, I think that all just speaks to this, like, fast and dirty approach to building these resort towns like you're talking about. And I think that's what we take away is that the secondary culture hears about these healing waters, they finally get the okay to come in, and they just, like, it's a mess. Yeah. It's... 
We need we need some backwards buildings for sure. <laughs> yeah, totally. The third bit of inspiration is, of course, slugs. Hooray! Specifically, the medical history of, of slugs and snails, because that's what we want to tap into here. We have these healing waters. We wanted a creature that's kind of going to be important in certain elements of the story. And for some reason, snails and slugs fit the bill. You wouldn't think so at first, but uh, we hope you'll get on board with us. They have some pretty fascinating medical history, going all the way back to one of our favorite sources, Pliny the Elder. Oh, I'm so excited that Pliny's <laughs> back. He's in it, mixing it up. He said, if you reduce it to a pulp, it'll cure burns, abscesses, and other wounds. Not too weird yet. It's also good for nosebleeds and stomach pain. For tummy trouble, you gotta boil them, grill them over a coal fire, and of course they have to be prepared in even number. Oh, yes. <laughs> Obviously. Standard medical procedure. <laughs> what the hell? If you dry them and peel them, they can be used for scrofula. <laughs> what the fuck is scrofula? Uh, it's a uh, Latin for brood sow, Trips. Oh, obviously that, that brood sow. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> Today we call that tuberculosis of the neck. Also really weirdly specific. I Yeah, we're not even going to get into that one. I love that there's just this like, you boil them, mash them, and you stick them in a stick. Like, there's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can do all kinds of things with slugs. You <laughs> typically wouldn't think of that. First off, there, there is a weird amount of history of traditional medicines using snail mucus. You know, since the time of ancient Greeks, they've been used to fix skin lesions. The common garden slug in ancient southern Italy was swallowed as a treatment for gastritis and stomach ulcers, hmm. which seems like a pleasant experience, really. I get the logic. The slime, you'd think, can just kind of patch up whatever holes are in there. Sure, yeah. It's like a gluey kind of substance, yeah. right? Yeah. Nature's glue. <laughs> Warts were removed by rubbing a slug on it. Sure. And then the slug was put in a windowsill to wither and die. And it was thought that just because the slug died, that's that's why mm. like the wart died with it. So you create an uh, unbreakable bond yeah. between the two. <laughs> a life force bond <laughs> between your wart and a slug. <laughs> Do you need like a trail of mucus to still connect? No, nope, no, nope. it's uh, okay. just, just uh, you know, it's science, really. Cool. Um, yeah, and that's really, you know, the, it was a recipe for teary eyes, whatever the fuck that was. Hmm. And then even into the early years of the U.S., they were mixing sugar and snails into like blending it into a slurry and then putting some grain alcohol with it. And that was also drank to cure stomach ulcers. Sure. Makes sense to me. It sounds like a, a fine drink. I found another way to prepare them in my reading. Uh, it was to cure spitting up blood from Nicholas ah. Lemery's 1738 Universal Pharmacopoeia. A nice book he published. I mean, they all all of these old books just sound like total bullshit just by the titles. Like we're used to you wouldn't dare name a medical textbook today. <laughs> and you wouldn't have one doctor write the whole thing. <laughs> right. That's that's what I think is always the best bit. But you would again crush them, put them in a glass jar, pour in some fresh donkey milk. Leave it for 12 hours, ah. distill it, expose that to the sun for a few days. No. And you're good to slurp it up. <laughs> a doctor wrote that. <laughs> oh, boy. That'll make you stop 
spitting up blood, apparently. Yeah, because you're shitting your brains out <laughs> from drinking sour donkey milk and, and snail. Uh, anyways, this long treasured history has not stopped, however, because still to this day, slug mucus is used as a skin treatment. There's a New York plastic surgeon named Matthew Schulman who offers a $400 Escar Glow Ooh. facial treatment where they microneedle mucus into your pores. So catchy name. I don't know how we're going to work all of this in, but I <laughs> guess we better figure that out in the Founders Square where we figure out how to make this all into a culture. Take a wander through the Founders Square, where folks from all corners come to share their traditions, philosophies, and customs. So we gotta build our cultures to suit our players. That means we have to return to the concepts we talked about in the first episode of this season, the common values of the party, which were controlling others is bad, so kind of a value of autonomy, and manipulation of others is also bad. Bit of honesty mixed in there. One of the common themes with our entire party's backstories was that they were all kind of like either willingly blind to the responsibilities that they had or actively running away from some of the responsibilities that they had left behind. Right. So there's a lot of really kind of cool common threads of like responsibility, doing good for the sake of doing good, like embracing what you should be doing. So that's what our monk-led temple town is going to kind of be about. And now typically with culture creation, we want to create five or so values that they hold above all else. And then five opposing values that they are willing to sacrifice to uphold those, those first set of values. And what's interesting about this we noticed that all you have to do to create a conflicting culture is take the values that the one culture doesn't uphold or is willing to sacrifice and make that the main values of the other culture. Yeah. And you immediately have <laughs> two very conflicting cultures. Absolutely. So the values that we ended up coming up with for this culture that is managing the healing waters so we've got vitality at the cost of autonomy because they're like a monk-like sect of people that are, you know, you don't have a lot of autonomy, but vitality, that's what we're offering. That's what's most important. And that town that moved in is all about autonomy. They love it. Here for it. Then we've got responsibility. So we've got our monks they're responsible for the upkeep of this entire place, obviously. Like, they're the only ones really kind of taking care of it because the town loves leisure. Exactly. They are hanging out. They've got the healing waters that give the surrounding area vibrancy of life. That means they got resources. They got everything they need. Why not relax? No responsibility whatsoever. Yeah, those so, monks yeah. are taking care of everything that needs to be taken care of. But the monks... They have tons of responsibilities. <laughs> yeah. No time for leisure. We got to up upkeep and maintain this massive complex. Yeah. The monks are extremely hard workers because they've taken all that responsibility onto their shoulders, which means that the party town is all about fun. Right. So monks, 
no fun. We have to sacrifice our fun yeah. for the sake of hard work. And the town doesn't need to work hard for anything, which probably leads to some pretty ramshackle stuff. <laughs> right? Oh, man. The, I love the contrast. Yeah. Like This process creates so much contrast that it's great. And it's so much fun to play this up within the game because, you know, there's so many subtle things that we do as GMs that our players just don't pick up on. And I love the fact that we're building something that is so drastically opposite that there is no way that you can't not notice it. <laughs> yeah, you're catching this. Yeah. So then we have conviction at the cost of empathy. They have to, they are beholden to this palace. They're beholden to this perfect uh, place of this perfect temple. That is their conviction, conviction to the cause. And you know what? Sometimes we have to sacrifice empathy. We have to make hard decisions that right. aren't always, you know, thoughtful to everyone's feelings. Exactly. Whereas the town, pretty free and easy. Come on in, everyone. Like, yeah. you deserve, oh, I feel very empathetic towards you. You should, yeah, that must be difficult. Come, you having a rough come day? to the town. I was getting here. <laughs> Take a load off. Right. Have a, have a slug cocktail. <laughs> no convictions whatsoever. And then the final one would be security at the cost of charity. So again, along the similar kind of lines, but we have got to keep this place safe and secure. Secure. Got to keep it out of the hands of folks that are going to abuse it. Which means we can't be super charitable. We got to lock the doors every night. We got to, you know, whatever that looks like, we need to make sure that, you know, we, we keep this place secure. And what access the temple does give to the town, they are so charitable about it because they haven't worked for it. <laughs> They've got no responsibility about it. It's just any resources that come to them have been free. So why wouldn't they keep handing it out? Right. And we've talked about this village and this entire valley that this village is in as being like really, really bountiful. So like even farmers barely have to touch their crops <laughs> because everything's just springing right up. Like this yeah. is a valley plenty. I feel like we have a pretty strong vibe for each. Yeah. And the other thing that I really enjoy about this is that now when we create NPCs, if an NPC, say like one of the monks, is diverging from the cause, is like has a difference of opinion, all we have to do is swap a couple of those around. Yeah. You know, the this one particular NPC monk believes very, very strongly in four of them, but then the fifth one is just swapped around. So they believe that we should be more empathetic instead of having our convictions. Like we can soften a little bit and be more empathetic and let people in and be caring. And now all of a sudden you have somebody who's like, what the, you're not thinking straight. Like, no, that's not <laughs> what we're about. Or I like the idea of the party strolling into the tavern in the town and finding someone in disguise. Well, it's one of the monks that thinks, oh my that, God. Yeah. <laughs> thinks that they should be able to have a little fun, all right? Just try to take a load <laughs> off for once. Oh, my God. All I do is toil. When the party, uh, you know, uncovers their disguise and thinks there's some nefarious evildoer, they're just like, I'm just a monk. I'm sorry. Please <laughs> don't tell. I'm supposed to be here. I got to go. <laughs> Please keep my secret. So then we have to kind of talk about some of their beliefs. So what do the monks believe based on some of these values? Well, the town is almost baked into their beliefs. Because it's been all these years and they've really developed a, 
you know, a bit of a thick skin when it comes to dealing with the town. Right. So, you know, they don't engage with the townsfolk. They live lives of quiet silence and solitude and tend to the holy places of rejuvenation. I mean, that's going to be a little bit difficult when, like, Margaritaville is right outside your walls. <laughs> yeah, but absolutely. I do like that, like, maybe that was back in the day. You know, they were very, very isolated. And, like, it took days and days to travel to the town. And, like, it was an arduous journey. But when once you got there, you got to bathe in the water and rejuvenate yourself. And so, like, they're just trying to stick to their traditions of, like, no, we... We're quiet. We are peaceful. Like we don't really engage much. We don't party. We just, you know, they're just sticking to their guns, really. But by doing so, since the town has sprung up around them, like don't make high contact. You know, those those folks are wild. Like we just have to maintain our temple. And although the town gets to benefit, like we just stick to our guns, live as we always did. And the town. Very much lives by the creed, you know, live for today. Carpe diem. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is just a whole bunch of Jimmy Buffett parrot heads living outside your holy <laughs> temple. <laughs> Let's get trashed today because, I mean, we can always go for a bath tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. The bath cures hangovers. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> I mean, we're dipping right into this backstory. Like, I can already see where this is kind of going. Right, so let's hop into that piece of the culture creator. What environment did this culture, these cultures, originally form in? Well, if we're talking about the actual temple, like, I do, you know, I think there has to be a genesis of the temple. It wasn't always there. Somebody discovered it. So I wonder if it's literally like, hey, we've found this bountiful valley, you know, some travelers going through there, and they stop and they rest. And they stay like a week and they go, oh, holy shit, a scar that I once had has disappeared. Yeah. Well, kind of like how we discovered coffee. One of the legends is that a guy's donkey had extra energy that day. So yeah. the coffee bean plant was all of a sudden the hot thing. Right. Kind of the same deal. Yeah. So then somebody finds it and then somebody says, oh, damn, this is a hot little tamale of a secret. Yeah. You know, I don't want everyone to know about it. So I'm just going to keep it to myself. And then, you know, over time, you discover the reason, like maybe it's the slugs, they they figure it out. Oh, shit, there's like magic slugs in the ground, or they're swimming around in the water. That must be what it is. Like, now we really need to lock this shit down. Yeah, no secret can actually be kept once somebody tells their best friend and that best friend tells the <laughs> two best friends. And then that turns out to be the town gossip. Yeah. <laughs> so people started coming after that. Right. And the only way to stop people from coming is to build a huge ass wall around it. So I wonder if like maybe that's how that sect really started of these monks who just like, listen, people are going to come here. We're going to need to be careful about it. So let's start to you know, organize this thing. Yeah. And then, you know, if you keep it a secret, if you wall it off so that nobody else can find it or see it, then all of a sudden it's, it's you know, a holy place for just your order. And then, you know, you need to get more people involved. So then you say, okay, yes, you can be a monk. And that's the only way that you gain access to the living waters. 
We've been learning a lot about how to care for this place. We got to maintain the structures we've built. We got to maintain the slugs. We got to make sure their environment is stable. We got to right. make sure that these waters keep flowing. Like there's a lot of duties here. So you're going to have to be pretty disciplined in order to join our order and get access to these sweet, sweet tubs. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, people still want access. So then you go, well, now we have too many monks. What if we make it a little bit more exclusive and only the most dedicated, uh, daring, most deserving monks get in? Let's build a temple of trials that makes sure that every monk is dedicated to all of our values. Right. And they like go through the the temple and they learn about it is, in fact, the the living of some of those values that gets them through the deadly trials. They learn about the the tenants of their order, and that's what gets them through this temple. Yeah, pretty deadly. So <laughs> that started to <laughs> dissuade people from actually wanting to join. Yeah. You hear about this this cool place with these healing waters. You're like, oh, oh, sign me up. Oh, wait, I have to go through a <laughs> series of tests that might kill me? <laughs> well, I guess that kind of uh, negates the healing factor that I would have if I made it through. Yeah. <laughs> Not willing to die in order to heal, so. Yeah. So then their numbers start to dwindle one day. You know, maybe one of those monks, like we talked about, you know, diverges from the ideals and says, you know what? We've been doing this all wrong. Everyone deserves access to the healing waters. And then they changed the precedent that they had been set for generations and said, you know what, we're going to open up our doors and every day we'll ring a bell and people can come and bathe, you know, once a month or once a week or, you know, and, and we'll open up our doors to the outside world. And before long margaritaville happens (laughs) we'll open up our outer doors yeah and then still have some control on the inner doors we'll we'll probably get some you know campers some tents yeah yeah so (laughs) oh yeah of course oh we need to attract more people to our way of life yeah so let's you know people can make the pilgrimage here camp outside like you say and and get access for a little bit and then they'll leave right (laughs) <laughs> right why would we leave <laughs> this is sweet well i'm building a tavern down the road <laughs> this is gonna be good times whoops built backwards yeah <laughs> oh perfect i like the idea that you gotta like go to the top of a hill and slide down to the front door because it's built like right into a bank or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah something really stupid i mean i think as far as some of the details like we've got pretty solid start like a dream life is to become the grand monk for the monks. Like, oh yeah, you get immortalized as a statue in those, uh, the baths of Karasala. In a sense, the dream life is just doing your duty every day. Right. And of course, the dream life of the town is to live hard, die old because of the healing waters. <laughs> and you probably won't have much memory of today. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've got hostile cultures and friendly cultures built right into this super, super easy. You know, the challenge is kind of nobody wants to join the monks anymore because you can just join the town. Yeah. You get all the same benefits. And now the monks are very like I'm thinking skeleton crew is still operating in this space. And they're working so 
hard. Like right. each one of them is just like all out every day, stressed yeah. to the max. Yeah. Silently stressed to the max. They can't talk to anyone. Yeah. Nobody understands what they're really going through. They're just really happy that they're taking care of the slugs. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. Artifacts are where I, I kind of have a lot of fun. Like, what kind of tools would this culture use? I was thinking, what if each member of this temple culture could have a, a jug that's half filled with water that they transport slugs around with, hooked on their belt or something? I think that each of them would have like a trowel that they use to repair everything. Like, they always have to be repairing. Right. You see something, you fix it. Right. Yeah. Because we don't have time to go log it and put it on the schedule. It just needs to be done. Yeah, I dig that. And since there used to be a lot more monks, I'm thinking, what if the townsfolk use those very same well-crafted jugs from all the old monks that are supposed to be for caring for the slugs, but they use them to get wasted? <laughs> like every townsperson has a jug too, but it's like a tool of inebriation rather than a tool of care. Right. <laughs> okay. So this is spring break, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. <laughs> And everyone's just getting smashed all the time. Yeah. And I just, I imagine that that would be a particular sore spot. For oh, the yeah. So just like, yeah. yeah, yeah. You uppity bastards. <laughs> you, you rat bastards are just taking our holy symbol of slug care <laughs> and sucking booze out of it. And of course, it's probably going to have a healing property to it. Yeah. Because it's still got slug juice in the middle exactly. of it. We've, we've got the uh, the blended slug <laughs> effect. You're right. <laughs> Sluggeritas. <laughs> oh, my God. Of course we need to make sluggeritas a thing. <laughs> yeah, so gross. I'm excited to figure out the, the specific mechanics for that someday. But yeah. And then I think we need to just like really up the ante in terms of like what the slugs look like. You know, you had sent me a photo of what was it? Sea slugs? Nudibronx. Right. Yes, sea slugs. But this is part of the reason that I got entirely on board <laughs> because I'm going to put a link for you. It's the species of sea slug that has so many variations and their color patterns are wild like the picture i sent travis is this like translucent blue slug with two horns coming off of its head and it's got this like huge wide mustache it's got all these like <laughs> spikes coming off of its back that look like they're tipped with fire and i cannot believe that this is not a fantasy creature right so, it's... like just look through the pictures of that and they're all wildly different you can use them as is in your games right if we run something like this, yeah. I mean, they do. They look like something out of Willy Wonka's fever dream. Yeah. So we definitely need, like, the slug presence to be felt in this town. They're, like, swimming through the living waters with people. They're all over the place. I almost see, like, a massive incubator room in their temple that's kind of like a ant farm for slugs. That could be kind of a cool thing to move through as a party. There you go. Just, like, all these glowing slugs in the walls. That would be super cool. And I think that the way that the town respects these slugs is that they take them as pets, dress them up in oh, fun no. little outfits. Everyone's got one on display. That's super <laughs> not okay. Yeah, but it's what they would do, Travis. Yeah. As far as phrases, we like to come up with greetings or curses, that kind of thing for a particular culture. So the one that just kind of jumps to my mind is something simple like the waters bless you as a greeting or as like goodwill. 
But then because they're like really upstanding, you know, studious folks, a phrase like be of service could be like an acknowledgement of good work, or it could be a get your ass to work, you <laughs> loafing piece of shit. Yeah. So, you know, you, you'd have a lot of flexibility with something like that. I keep just wanting to make phrases for the town that just almost insult the phrases of the temple. When you said be of service, I imagine something to do with surfs up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the monks say be of service and the townsfolk respond with like surfs up, <laughs> like as if they misheard it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. No, that is not what I said. <laughs> they're all wasted anyways. They're not yeah. hearing what they're saying. <laughs> Stuff like clothing comes really, really simple. Like, obviously, the monks are in really drab clothes, and then we need the fantasy equivalent for the town of a floral shirt. Right, whatever fits your world, but the the core elements being colorful, like, just over the top. Right. And then as far as, like, style goes, what are you thinking for the actual temple itself? Like, what jumps to mind when you think? Because we've, we've built on kind of Roman backbone taking inspiration from those baths. I see the the grandeur and the scale being there, but I don't see the like the lavishness and the the like amount of detail that the Romans, the artistic flares that the Romans might use. Right. Well, I mean, I could see that maybe on the interior because if they lived there for generations, you know, this is the epicenter of the flourishing valley. So I could see it overgrowing with greenery and finery. And like, you know, if these monks had been using this healing water as a way to gain leverage over the last long while of saying like, yeah, we have pilgrims come here to get healed and sometimes rich pilgrims. And sometimes we <laughs> kind of exploit that because, you know, we're not having a lot of we're monks. We don't have a lot of money coming in. You know, we've got to figure out a way of making this work. So, you know, silks and all kinds of things on the inside. But I could really see like a brutalist exterior, almost like a stay the hell away. There's nothing good in here. Right. Like trying to minimize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's space. why the defenses were built to not be appealing. Right. Exactly. And then, of course, the town is ramshackle as hell. Yeah, it is. How do we just bathe and laze <laughs> and enjoy the sun? Do the least possible amount to get what we need. <laughs> and then the rest is easy. It's like one step above a shanty town. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, because everyone's partying all the time, like shit's getting knocked over. <laughs> but there's hammocks everywhere. too. Oh, yeah. Lots of hammocks, lots of trees, lots of lots of wonderful plants and you know, even animal life, I would imagine, naturally would kind of want to come here. And but. I think that you're, you're right. Originally, the temple would have had some artistic flair, but now they're they're sort of just like doing what they need to do. They don't have any extra time. Right. But the town, with all their abundance of time, they'd probably be pretty like arts and culture focused. Sure. Like. You know, there'd be performances going on. There'd be art being made. All right. Yeah, let's upscale it. Not a shanty town, but yeah, pretty opulent in the way that people would have like opulent culture. Everyone's kind of making pottery and all kinds of stuff because they can. They are afforded that leisure time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying like fine art. I'm saying lots of cheap art. 
Yeah, they can do whatever the hell they want to do. It's yeah. it's a it's a it's a surf town. Yeah, there's lots of pretty buildings and colorful things, and yeah, yeah, I got you. Uh, what do you want to call these folks? What do you want to call the monks? Slugs got to be prominent and prevalent. That's what their whole deal is. And the Latin word for slug is limax. Hmm. Yeah. So like the limaxians. Yeah. The or limaxites. Yeah, okay, the Lamaxites. Lamaxites. Uh, yeah, we'll work on how to pronounce. Wait, we're we're like, oh yeah, they're the sluggers, basically? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> Maybe the town is called the sluggers. Yeah. Like in English. Right. <laughs> you got the Lamaxites and the sluggers. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Nail it down later. Well, that worked pretty well. I'm pretty satisfied with the foundations of a couple cultures that I think I have everything I would need to have players exist in this world and start planning sessions around really easy. So hopefully you got something out of this episode too. Hopefully you have some ideas for wild cultures that are going to fit into your next games. I, I'm almost terrified to hear about what you've created based on anything that we've <laughs> talked about today. I'm sure your brain ran off into some wild directions, and I'm excited to hear about some of them. But a big thanks to the community that allows us to go down these weird rabbit holes and come up with this stuff. <laughs> okay, so we're the town. They're the, <laughs> they're the supporters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. We totally. get to be carefree dicks. <laughs> we're not the disciplined ones. Yeah. Thanks to Inigo the Brave. David P. Adam F. Alex R. Steve A. Sigma. Kaleidoscope. Skylar E. Ninja Ducky. Sue Art. Blackthorn. First Law. Peacock Dreams. DM Thunderbum. Marley R. Time Warp. Dangerous Marmalade. Zach G. No Ma'am. Michelle T. Adlerius. Chris F. The Senate. Lucas D. Lila G. The GM Tim. Nevermore. Thomas W. DM Natsky. Heavy Arms. Leprechaun. And Will HP. Uh, seriously, though, thank you all so, so much. Your continued support of this show and what we're attempting to do it really does mean the world to us thank you so much to every patron that supports the show yes i am regularly humbled by the list of people that believe in what we're doing indeed thanks for any of the resources that we mention find them for free at our website hookandchance.com like that culture creator you can share the episode and the content if you found this or the culture creator helpful um, share it freely. You know, it certainly helps us grow and get the message and the resources that we work so hard on out there in the hands of everyone else. You can join an excellent community of players and DMs sharing ideas on our Discord. If you can think of a name for this town, hit us up in that Discord. We're trying to think, what's a good name for this town? Thanks to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects that you heard in this episode. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening and have a slugarita in our honor. A toast. Mm.